You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. This is Father Jason Leffer along with Father Jeff Epler. Hello. And we are entering into the segment known as Straight Talk. And so this is where we... Oh, there it is. The phone calls. The phone lines are open. The phone lines are open. one 877 So... Now, what's, what's great, Father Epler, is to have you online with us, or on air this morning. Not for your charming and winning personality, of course. Of course. But your, your vast knowledge of all things Catholic. Now, were you always Catholic? I was not. I grew up Methodist, actually. Um, converted in college to Catholicism, to the one true faith. Praise the Lord. What, what was it that drew you to the Catholic faith? <clears throat> well... Uh, the Eucharist was essential, actually, and uh, and I found that when Tim was talking about charismatic, I also got introduced to the charismatic prayer uh, during college as well, and that really brought me into uh, a deeper appreciation of the Catholic faith through that, actually. And for those who are listening might not know, what, what do you mean by the charismatic? What does that mean? Well, the charismatic uh, element of the faith is an openness to the Holy Spirit to allow the gifts of the Spirit to manifest um, not just the interior ones that we always get in confirmation, but uh, but exterior ones, which are we call in Greek the charismata, which which are the the miraculous manifestations of the spirit, like tongues, prophecy, healing, things like that. And I got involved with the charismatic uh, prayer group there, and um, really experienced the Holy Spirit profoundly. As Tim had mentioned, that the Holy Spirit really really you know, brings you to a, a personal dimension of the third person, the Trinity. And I experienced that uh, powerfully, and it drew me more deeply into uh, Eucharistic adoration and my experience with Christ in the Eucharist, as a matter of fact. Now, did you know about those things before becoming Catholic, or you just discovered it while being Catholic? Uh, I discovered it while being Catholic. I mean, we didn't have the charismatic in the Methodist church that I grew up in. Um, We had scripture. I mean, that was pretty much about it. Uh, um, Singing. Yeah, we had a little bell choir. Were, were you spiritual, like your your whole life, and interested in religious things, or did that come on later in life? What was the? Um, that's a good question. Actually, I don't know if I was really spiritual, but I, I noticed that uh, looking back, I was empathetic in a lot of ways that I didn't understand, and that made me sensitive to to uh, people's hearts and, and and things. And I didn't understand that at the time. Um, and of course, it kind of messed with me emotionally because I didn't know how to deal with that. Um, but as as I came into the faith and my relationship with Christ grew, I came to understand what that gift was, and it was a gift, you know, toward ministry to others. And, and I didn't I didn't understand that until until now. But and if you could just kind of boil it down to one one what what is it about the Catholic faith that you said this is the thing I'm called Eucharist? And what does that Eucharist. mean? What does that mean? The simple fact that we have Jesus. Christ present body, blood, soul, and divinity Eucharist is is the X factor. I mean, that's the main factor. That was the factor that drew me into the faith. Because when I went into a Catholic uh, campus ministry with a fraternity brother, um, I'd never been to anything Catholic. I mean, St. Peter's Church was across the street from Methodist Church. Never knew what those crazy Catholics did. You know, I, I mean, you don't ask either. So it's like, okay. So the first time I went there, I found the chapel. I saw the tabernacle. I had no clue what that thing was. I mean, it confounded me. I knew what an altar was. We had that in our Methodist church. But 
And so when the fraternity brother came in and genuflected to this metal box in the corner, I'm like, what are you doing? And he started to explain to me, and I'm like, what's the Eucharist? Because he brings up Eucharist, and you know, I don't know that terminology, growing a Methodist. And, and he explains to me about what happens to Catholic Mass. Jesus turned, bread becomes Jesus, and we keep him there. I'm like, so what you're telling me is that the Jesus I read about in the scriptures growing up, that I read a lot, is physically right there. Right there in the corner, right there. That's what you're telling me. He goes, yep, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I believed it. I figure it must have been all my dead Catholic relatives praying for me. <laughs> so, so I found out later I have a lot of those. <laughs> so there is some Catholic faith in your in your past. I mean, it's, it's history. In my extended family, there is, which I didn't even know growing up because I was in the Protestant nucleus. That's where I grew up in. And uh, it's kind of funny because my mom's uh, dad's sister said to me one time, she goes, you know, out of all of our Catholic side of the family, we didn't get any priests. But then out of this Protestant chunk, you get a priest. I'm thinking, yeah, well, God's good with irony. And no, so that going just to, let's touch on that one more, one more. That moment when he says that the Eucharist and all, it would, was it a moment of grace? Would you say like infused uh, knowledge it, or something? It was what? a moment of grace, um, which I didn't understand until I went on a retreat with them about a month later with the ministry. And they had Eucharistic Adoration during that retreat. And uh, I was just drawn to, to want to spend time with them. And then after that, I'm like, I, I got I to gotta spend time. I had a profound experience with the Holy Spirit who convicted me of my sinfulness, ironically, okay, on that retreat. And I, one, the thing that impressed me the most about that was that God could love me. And that I didn't realize how empty I was until God began to fill it. And so I said, no, this is, this is what I want now. And so I would, after that retreat, I would go over to the campus ministry every day. I plop myself in front of the blessed sacrament. I'd sit there and I look at him, and I go, "You know, I don't have a clue how to pray. I mean, I'm just going to sit here and, until I don't." And then I do that each day, and each day got longer and longer and longer until, you know, each day I'd spend two, three hours in front of the blessed sacrament, and then he began to teach me how to pray. You know, this is a great segue for our first question that's coming in today. Okay, this is Real Presence Live. This is the Straight Talk segment, one 877 Watch this. So we, we have a listener. She's not on the phone, but she sent in a question. And I think her name was Joyce, if I, if I got this information right. But here, here we go. Ready? Okay. First live on-air challenge. Here it comes. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Josh. Sorry, my, my mistake. Josh writes in. He's wondering, what, what would the father say about introducing Lexio Divina to little children and how to get them started? I guess we're the fathers. Okay, I thought that was the father. Us father. We three fathers. There we go. Okay, so Father Epler, first of you, what would you say about introducing, first of all, what is Lexio Divina and how would, should you or how would you introduce it to a child? Okay, uh, Lexio Divina is really kind of the, the meditation and pondering of the scripture. And the, the best way to do this is the scriptures of the day, or you can use the Sunday scriptures. Um, I would strongly recommend it, introducing it to the children and to the family. It doesn't have to be complicated. You know, you don't even have to read all of the scriptures for the day. Just read one. And, and then what you do is you pull out a line and ponder it and start discussing it and pray, for it, pray about it. And, I mean, little kids, they're good little ponderers. I mean, they've got good imaginations. I mean, so you let the Holy Spirit kind of move with that. And, um, and pull out something that they could actually grasp on. Because I don't know, it depends on the age of the child and their understanding of, of just vocabulary, that the, uh, the depth of their pondering. But you can discuss it and prayerfully discuss it. 
Oh, yeah. I totally recommend it. Father Mon, do you have any experience with children Lexio Divina in your ministry? Yeah, I've done it during Eucharistic Adoration before uh, with children, especially on camp, uh, at camps, when we have our Lord exposed. I just to take some passage, especially really something relational, very relational to... Uh, there are a lot of passages that are really good um, uh, from the Gospels that have people relating to Jesus and just start introducing them. As you said, their imagination is so... Uh, uh, good that that it's easy for them to do it. It gets almost harder for us as we get older. Um, but I've done it with them, and they they receive. So here here's a very interesting, unique way in which Lexio has affected children in my ministry. So I think you guys are aware that I'm, I'm big on the antiphons as part of the liturgy, sacred liturgy, chanting the entrance and antiphon, the offertory, and the community antiphon. So when I was pastor at the Newman Center, we'd always start every liturgy by chanting the antiphon. That the people would do it with the priest, and we'd do the psalm. I had a, a little three-year-old boy little three-year-old boy um and he he would be there and he would just belt out the antiphon response and and his parents told me they said throughout the week he he marches around the house and he chants the antiphon over and over okay <laughs> now ironically now this isn't little children but a little heart is i've i've had like 85 year old grandmothers tell me Father, I was vacuuming my house the other day, and all of a sudden I found myself chanting the antiphon. So there is the, the word of Christ in the heart, in the mind, not even conscious of it, and it's feeding the soul in the spirit. So the word of God is absolutely powerful. It is. Absolutely, okay, so here, the first one to raise his hand on this, again, real, uh, we're doing straight talk, one 877 Please call text or you can go online uh, to the website and send your questions here this one has been generated from the good people here at beavers cafe um okay first one to hit the buzzer gets to answer this question ready why aren't all catholic churches the same regarding kneeling and standing at the same time i just don't get it we're next to another diocese we go back and forth and it confuses me some churches don't even have kneelers Okay, who, which one of you would like to tackle that one? Well, it confuses me too, as a matter of fact, uh, if I'm going to be honest. Because um, I know there's, there's norms for the United States that uh, was approved by Rome a long time ago that all the states are, you know, diocesan states are supposed to adhere to. Um, but I know that sometimes some of the bishops in their own diocese change some of the norms, which uh, to some degree is within their, their uh, purview. Uh, and then, of course, Fortunately, you get some pastors that change the norms, which isn't in their purview. Um, so that's kind of a loaded question there with no real easy answer. I oh, like even as a, like a Protestant becoming Catholic coming in, was, was that hard for you when you were first coming in to see the different kind of spiritualities and things? Or uh, Well, you know, it was enlightening because um, the, the campus ministry I converted in, um, we passed around the Eucharist. No, I that's mean, a Catholic church. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Yeah. So okay. I was exposed right off the bat to some kind of oddball stuff that I find out later, of course, isn't really loud. I'm like, okay, you know, but um, so there's a variety out there, which uh, which is unfortunate in that sense. Um, there's a lot of liturgical abuses and, and things, but um, yeah, I mean, we're. I'm going to turn now to our expert because to my left, Father Brian Moan used to be the MC of our diocese. True. So he, he was responsible for whether we stand, whether we kneel from the bishop down. He had to. So, Father Moan, what can you tell us from behind the scenes hmm. about these questions? I mean, just like what? I mean, how? Give us some enlightenment here. 
to answer that question. Or, or to the best of your ability. Yeah. Well, as Father Epler said, some norms are established by the church, other ones are given to the bishops' conferences, and other ones bishops have. Uh, there is a lot of uh, confusion out there because after the Second Vatican Council, a lot of people, a lot of even priests, began not following the rubrics, and so there's a lot of confusion out there. Um, and it's brought a lot of disunity and a lack of reverence uh, into, into the church's worship, unfortunately. Well, why, why is reverence an important thing? I mean, some people say, like, ah, oh, who needs that? Well, I mean, why is that important? Well, reverence is important uh, within the Catholic liturgy because we're actually there to worship God, not ourselves. And so the reason all these things are so valuable and so important is because uh, these rubrical things and these liturgical movements, they're really there to help and aid us, uh, to keep us focused on the worship of God. It can be easily tempting to think that, that the focus of worship is ourself, uh, but it actually is God. And so all these things, reverence is so critical because it actually leads us into for, for performing our mind and heart to the worship of God alone. You know, you stimulate me to think that the word reverence is actually there's... It's like the word awe or terror. It's the same word. So like <clears throat> awe, something can be awful or something can be awesome. Something can be terrible or something can be terrific. And so that like you're hitting on that whole thing, why reverence is so important. Because the very thing can take us away from God and destroy us, turn us toward man, or can actually elevate us to the heights of, of, of God. Well, and when you look at, I mean, who is this that we're worshiping? We're worshiping the most holy trinity. In the Mass, when you even look at the, the, ma the prayers in the Mass, they're oriented toward the Father, you know, through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity is glorified at the Mass, the whole thrust of it. And uh, when you have the Lord saying, be holy as God is holy, you find then our worship should be oriented toward the holiness of, of the divine, not, not toward ourselves, because on our own, we're not holy. We're only holy in union with the will of God. Apart from the will of God, we're not holy. I mean, that's... That's reality there. This is Real Presence Live. Uh, this is the Straight Talk segment where we want to hear from you, listeners on air. The number is 1-877-795-0122, 1-877-795-0122. Meanwhile, Janelle has been working the crowd here at Beaver's Cafe, and she has generated some very interesting questions. Here's another one from our, uh, from our local people here. Okay, ready? Here we go. Okay, first one to hit the buzzer. Okay. Why do some Catholic churches have confirmation and Holy Communion given to seven-year-olds when children who are 16 years old don't even understand the sacraments? Whoa. Okay. Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, okay. He's eager. Right. Here we go. Father Moan. All right. Uh, there's a lot of confusion uh, that can come about that. I think the simple and quick answer to it is that the church traditionally kept the sacraments of initiation in the order of baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist. These three sacraments initiate us and orientate us to a relationship with Jesus and conform us to him, uh, completed with reception of our Lord in the Eucharist. In the early 1900s, uh, I believe it was Pope St. Pius X at the time, uh, for good reason, chose to lower the age of First Communion as a way to increase people's reverence and love of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And so he lowered the age of, of receiving Holy Communion, but did not move the age of confirmation with it. Um, even though the sacraments prior to that would have been received in that kind of order, you would have received the Eucharist and uh, confirmation at a later age in life. He just moved the Eucharist down to a younger age, but didn't move confirmation with it. One of the reasons for that is the theology of confirmation, although it's 
good to think of it as a maturing in the faith is not to be too quickly confused with the age of a person. And so some bishops have decided to move the sacrament of confirmation back to the, with the Eucharist because it's integrally connected with being conformed to Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with it um, because the sacraments are something God's doing to us, not something we're doing for God or to God. And if we make the, we can easily make the mistake of thinking that, that if, if it's confirmation is something we're doing for God um, and that we need to be old enough to do it for him, uh, well, that'd be great. But in reality, most people think confirmation is graduation and they stop doing anything for God after they thought they did something for God. So it sounds to me like you're saying that there's two... That really, so like a 16-year-old who is unaware has nothing to do with whether you receive confirmation at an earlier age or not, that that's a separate issue. So maybe we should be... Why do we have 16-year-olds who don't know their faith? I mean, that might be a deeper question. Yeah. Well, and to get to that question, let me respond to something that Father Brian had mentioned. I mean, in some of the Eastern rites, we have you know the infants receiving the sacrament of initiation. My, my own mother. My <laughs> yeah. own mother. Her eighth day, she was baptized, confirmed, received her first yep. Eucharist. As a Ukrainian Catholic. Yes, that's yeah. correct. So you find then the grace of, of God at work. Now, after that, you had the responsibility of the parents raising the children in the faith. Okay, uh, which I think goes to the question you're talking about here. Yeah. Okay. What was the question? <laughs> it is, why, why do we have 16-year-olds who don't know the faith? Why would we be confirming okay. something seventh or 7-year-old if even a 16-year-old doesn't know the faith? Um, because people have mistakenly believed that it's the parish's responsibility to form uh, the children exclusively in the faith. When you get one hour a week with a kid and expect them to all of a sudden live the faith when it's not being lived at home, then, yeah, good luck. But, it come, you know, you said the, they expect the parish to commute. Well, I always say, who is the parish? Well, it's the parents living at home and their families. And Correct. Their, their sacrament of marriage is the parish. It is. It is. And um, the people who have the first responsibility of raising, raising children in the faith is actually the parents because um, that's part of their spiritual uh, authority over their children given to them by God and the souls of their children entrusted to them uh, far before the souls of their children entrusted to the priests or the, or the hierarchies to the parents. And the parents have the responsibility then of forming the children of the faith. As a matter of fact, in the rite of baptism, we ask them, are they going to do that? Right. The very first question. Yeah. And, and the godparents are supposed to help with that, too. <laughs> and it's like, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, it's like, uh, why haven't you raised my kid? Why, my, why is my kid all messed up and doesn't go to church anymore? I said, well, what have you been doing at home? Well, um, I'm like, mm, okay. Okay. So, man, this is, this is a lively uh, uh, straight talk segment. And it's flying by really quickly. And uh, it's Real Presence Live. One eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. If you want to get on air, um, so far people have not been willing to have their voices on air, but there, we got a lot of questions coming in here. Okay, one eight seven seven nine five zero one two two. Do you guys know Doc Breen? Oh yeah, Doc Breen from up <laughs> yeah. in Belcourt. Okay, we all know Doc really well. Oh, yeah. he, he was haunting us here last week actually when he was <laughs> uh, he showed up. So he he's written in from Two Hearts Radio in Belcourt. Doc Breen says, "Okay, ready? You guys, yeah. hands on the buzzer. Okay. Here we go." What did Jesus mean when he said from the cross, I thirst? Mm. Well. I'll answer it. <laughs> go okay. Go. Well, first of all, since this is Doc, I'd say go listen to Father John Harden because he's the only voice you'll, you'll agree with. <laughs> secondly. <laughs> or Fulton Sheen, by the way. Yeah. Secondly, there's lots of things he could have meant. Obviously, uh, one way to understand it is that he's thirsting for souls. He's thirsting for us. 
But in his thirst for us, he, there's a, a way in which we could maybe understand it as that he's thirsting even for his, in his passion, he's thirsting for all that is needed for our salvation. You know, and the, what you make me think of, Father Moan, is the last three Sundays we've had the parables of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Which are kind of like riddles or stories with the moral or, but there's always this, the surface level meaning. Then there's another deeper level meaning. And, and it's, yep. have, have you, get, you guys, have you priests, like, have you discovered that, you know, once you think you've exhausted a meaning of a parable, all of a sudden it just goes deeper. Just, can, oh, yeah. can you think of examples of that in, of, of where? Well, even like what we're talking about with I thirst, um, when you look at that, uh, that phrase of Christ in the context of the covenant, okay, not just simply the personal relationship uh, dimension, but uh, but personal and communal dimension of the covenant. You see that that whole uh, notion of thirsting and what happens when he says that when they give him the wine about completing the the covenantal meal, okay, the sacrifice of the new and eternal covenant. Um, so there's that whole dimension to it, and uh, yeah, I found with the parables, oh my gosh, you can it's like an infinite onion. That you peel and you continue to cry as you peel because it keeps touching you more deeply. <laughs> try, try, try. Okay. I always think, so when you take these things and you apply them back to the Trinity, that's when it starts exploding with meaning. Yeah. So, for example, Jesus on the cross, I thirst. God the Father, his thirst is his son who's here. And, and it's, it's through the Holy Spirit that that thirst is quenched. It's like that, that eternal union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's declaring it from the cross. And like you say, he... He consummates it. He he drinks the marital cup to the dregs. You know, he gives to us eternal life. We give to him death. <laughs> he gets the raw end of the deal. He does. We get we get eternal life. Okay, this is a straight talk. One eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. Real presence live with Father Jeff Epler, Father Brian Moan, Father Jason Leffer. We're coming at you from Beavers Cafe in Minto, North Dakota, which we're so happy to be here. Just up I twenty nine on your way to the Canadian border, which I guess the Canadian border is closed. So you can't get through. But if you're coming up north, come to Beaver's Cafe. Best food, best ambiance, best fun Great in the burgers. whole location. Great burgers. Hi- and we're looking right on the Highway 81. Right. Okay, here we go. Ready, guys? Hands on buzzers. Here's your next question. Okay. As Catholics, we are supposed to fast from meat on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday during Lent. Are we also supposed to fast other Fridays during the church year or other days? It seems like we're not supposed to fast anymore. Eh, okay, yes. Father Moan, you get it quick. The Code of Canon Law sets out uh, days of penance in the church uh, that need to be observed by Catholics. That includes every Friday of the year, Ash Wednesday. What if it's St. Patrick's Day on a Friday? Uh, even more so. <laughs> okay, so... What, uh, so the, we are supposed to do an acts of penance, penitential days. Those include every Friday of the year and the 40 days of Lent. The, so the, uh, after the Second Vatican Council, the, the penance on Fridays, which always used to be abstaining from meat, uh, was uh, each bishop's conference was able to make their own uh, decision on it. The U.S. bishop's conference made the decision that uh, on the Fridays outside of Lent, Catholics could substitute another penance in place of abstinence, but that the Fridays of Lent and Ash Wednesday would be days of abstinence. There are two days of fasting that are part of this larger umbrella of penance. They include Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. 
So are we supposed to fast? Are we supposed to abstain? Uh, the, the bigger umbrella is penance needs to be done every Friday of the year and all the 40 days of Lent. Um, you can substitute uh, abstaining from meat on Fridays outside of Lent with another penance. So it sounds to me the emphasis actually is penance, penance. that Friday is a penitential day. Everyone. And by moral law in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. you have an obligation to do some type of penance. The normal penance would be fasting from meat. But but abstaining if, from meat. Sorry, abstaining from meat. But if you don't, there's a moral obligation to do some other form of mm-hmm. penance. Except what, how is that different in seasonal Lent? In, in the season of Lent, uh, there's a universal penance on every Friday, uh, which is to abstain from meat, and a universal penance uh, on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday to also fast. So maybe the, the deeper reality here is that we've, we've kind of lost the concept that, that penance is necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the way in, I was listening to Teresa Tamio right before this program, and, and there was a caller from Louisiana, and, and they were talking about how their parish was inspired by the Holy Spirit, convicted by the Holy Spirit, to start fasting and praying for the conversion of the United States. Like, what's going on in the United States for unity and peace in the United States? And I actually, it touched my heart deeply. Mm-hmm. I thought, yes. Why? I mean, just the church as a whole in the United States right now, we should be sending out that message. Uh, Catholics, all Christians, but especially Catholics, let's, let's do some fasting and penance. It, we've been told through fasting, through, through prayer, and fasting, natural disasters, horrible things can be changed, right? Yeah, well, even the Lord, when the apostles were trying to cast out a particular demon, okay, and they couldn't do it, even though they were given authority to do it, um, the Lord gives them the reason why, because they asked. And he said, These, this one can only come out through prayer and fasting. And, uh, well, Lord knows, we're dealing with a lot of demons in this country. Okay, so we, we need to be doing the prayer and the fasting. We gotta do it. So we this is Real Presence Live. This is our straight talk segment. We are graced with Father Jeff Epler, Father Brian Moan, this is your host, Father Jason Leffer, broadcasting from Beavers Cafe in Minto, North Dakota. It's been a very lively session. And again, we might have enough time if a caller calls in quickly, one eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. We could still get you on the air in the last couple of minutes here. Meanwhile, Janelle has been fishing all the vast patrons here at Beaver's Cafe for, for questions, and she has come up with some good ones here. Okay, hands on your buzzers, and let's, let's pick the next one out. Um, let's see here. Which one of these is going to work for... Okay, this one right here. Here we go. All right. Could you please shed some light on why purgatory is such a holy and good place for us to be purified at before we go to heaven? Um, is there something positive about this? Because I've, I've grown up thinking that this is a terrible thing. Well, purgatory is a manifestation of the divine mercy. Um, it's easy to say that there's just heaven and hell. And, and in the end, there is. But, you know, we're not always like where we should be. But we don't always deserve exactly what we think we should also. And so God, who is infinitely just, he renders a judgment upon a soul in, in the light of his own truth. And he knows that if a soul deserves uh, damnation and deserves the eternal reward, but is not yet perfect enough to enter into that that divine reward. And so therefore you have the purification state of purgatory, which is a manifestation of divine mercy. I mean, it really is. Uh, actually, all the saints in heaven glorify the mercy of God. That's the only reason they're there, because they corresponded with the mercy he has given to them. And of course, the souls in hell, they glorify his justice because, well, 
they got what they deserved. Okay. Is purgatory something the Catholic Church just made up? No. Well, you have even a belief uh, in a, a purification of some sort, even in the Jewish uh, scriptures of the Old Testament in Maccabees, that talks about offering sacrifices to remove the sins of those who have died. And you're like, what's going on there? Because there was a belief of a purification before entry into into eternal life. Wouldn't you say, isn't there, there's a connection between the natural and supernatural. So think about your own lives. Like, anything in this life worth doing, there's always a period of purification before you do it. Sure. Like, uh, before you get married, there's a time of testing. Um, before you have a great celebration, you have to work really hard to put it on. Before you have a great meal, it takes a lot of work to get everything ready to have that great meal. I mean, isn't that just a natural thing? Wouldn't this just be a supernatural, supernatural thing to be purified before you go into Even our court glory? systems. I mean, even our court systems understand that there has to be some form of atonement to particular actions. You know, and... We, we even understand it on a secular level. And so when we translate the secular into the spiritual, because we're both body and soul, you see that God is just, and so he does act in a, in a manner of justice toward the soul. Yeah, but, but he tempers his justice with his divine mercy, because he doesn't want souls damned. I have a kind of a neat experience with the souls in purgatory uh, after becoming a priest. Um, uh, I've always believed in, the, in, you know, in purgatory as a Catholic doctrine, but uh, I didn't necessarily have a personal relationship and awareness of this dynamic until I became a priest, uh, because as a priest, the greatest uh, sort of gift that I can offer to the souls who have died is to celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass for them. And uh, during retreats um, that I've had over uh, throughout my life, silent retreats, I've had the unique experience of souls of relatives uh, from my family line who have come to me in dreams, who I've never met, who I don't even know. It started to become really clear to me that that they were coming to me and saying, this is what we need you to pray for. And as soon as I started praying for those things, I started receiving uh, healing, generational healing within my own personal life that had to do with uh, cycles of sin or doubt or fear uh, going back. Surprisingly, too, one interesting thing is after I have a, a grandmother who passed away who was not Catholic. And a couple of months after she passed away, she came to me in a dream. And in the dream, I was in a hospital it's an old-style hospital where everybody's in the same large room, beds lined up side by side. And I, uh, I'm leaving the room, and I hear her speak my name, so I go over to her bed. And as I'm walking close, I see all these uh, people laying in their beds. They're really dirty. They're, some of them are missing limbs. They're all sweaty, uh, but they're all smiling. And as I approach her, she tells me in this dream, she says, uh, she tells me specifically what I need to pray for her. And so I started doing it immediately, interceding for her. And wow. so I really believe uh, in the souls of purgatory. I've experienced it more profoundly after becoming a priest. Man, that that is powerful. I got goosebumps, chills up and down my spine on on that one. Oh, yeah. Fathers, this has been one of the most fantastic straight talk segments we've ever had on Real Presence Live. Good job. Now, listeners, you're going to want to remember this number: one eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two one eight seven seven nine five zero one two two. Because on the other side of this hard break, there's going to be a promotion where Beaver is going to be giving away tickets to the drive-in movie theater in Ardock, no, Warren, Warren, sorry, Warren, Minnesota, where his. And we're going to hear about this on the other side of the break when Beaver joins, joins us. But free tickets to the drive-in movie theater, and who doesn't want those this summer? Especially, they're a hot commodity. He's he's loaded. So anybody who calls in, one eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. You you will receive a ticket to that. So stay tuned to Real Presence Live. 